welcome to the Plant-Based Canada podcast. Join us as we talk with experts to explore the field of nutritional sciences and how our food choices impact our health and the environment. We sit down with Canadian doctors, dietitians, athletes, climate experts, and more to break down the evidence behind a whole foods plant-based diet and discuss the practical steps you can take in your effort to shift toward a healthier lifestyle. Today, I sit down with Dr. Kathleen Cavani. She's an associate professor and director of rural research collaboration with Dalhousie University Faculty of Agriculture. She did her postdoctoral fellowship with United Nations University, where she worked on the Decade of Education for Sustainable Development. Dr. Cavani is a certified counselor, psychotherapist, and offers free webinars on living with greater health, happiness, and mindfulness through her virtual office of Eating a Vibrant Life. In her book, Plant-Based Diets for Succulents and Sustainability, Dr. Cavani and her co-authors detail the first systems analysis of plant-rich living. She applies her knowledge of social psychology and decades of experience in business, government, and community development to fostering conscious consumption and passionate leadership for the highest quality of life. Dr. Cavani's research is focused on issues of human rights and social change, as well as fostering greater health and happiness through food by co-designing sustainable diets for both the individual and for communities. Dr. Cavani has also been asked to lead the Routledge Handbook for Sustainable Diets due for publication in 2022. Dr. Cavani, it's great to be talking to you today. I first want to thank you for joining us and then also thank you for joining the Plant-Based Canada Conference earlier this year in which you gave a talk about how our food choices impact climate change and then also ways to help reduce a person's ecological footprint. So thank you so much for joining us today and thank you again for, for joining us for the conference earlier this year. Well, Planet is a campaign that we're all contributing to and I'm thrilled to be able to share more about some ideas and directions. Absolutely. So let's get started then. Like most of our podcasts, we always want to know a little bit more about our guests. So I want to start with your background. And I understand that you grew up in a, in a small city with your father sharing stories about being connected to the land on a small, diversified family farm that you had in Ireland. So can you tell us about that? And then also tell us what got you started on your path to studying human relations and its sustainability and the intersection of those things with plant-based diets? Sure. Yeah, it's a lot of big question and love to talk about myself and my family. So happy to start off there. We are um, from Chatham, Ontario. I grew up in the southwest of Canada and the great southwest, I like to say, because it's among the Great Lakes, beautiful part to grow up in and a lot of rural development in the area. Um, and my father's from County Mayo in Ireland. So there's been a, um, never a day my father has not breathed Irish air, even though he's been a Canadian citizen since he was, uh, or at least came when he was 22 with about as many dollars in his pocket. So quite courageous of him. And he grew up on a farm that was rather integrated. It had, um, you know, chickens and cows along with uh, lots of uh, fruits and vegetables grown locally. Um, but it was pretty much a dairy production. Um, his family would then sell their milk to neighboring families and into town as well. And he jokes with me, my dad, that, uh, you know, Kathleen, why don't you enjoy some of this meat? As he points to a big piece of steak on his plate. And I say, Dad, I'm kind of going through this life, you know, without a triple bypass and colon cancer, all powers willing, since sadly he has suffered those, but fortunately he's still with us. And he says, it's just condensed vegetables. And I said, I'm going direct to the source. And so for me, um, coming to this work has been really a journey of uh, awareness 
I've been privileged to be educated. I've been privileged to have the time to kind of steep myself in this. And I do appreciate that most people don't have that time. So I, I consider it my privilege and my mission, really, to bring to people's awareness what I have the opportunity to get to understand. And so food is one of our best strategies for the best life we can have. Food truly is our medicine and it truly is the pathway for well-being on the planet. It's the pathway for equity also. And when we are uh, divorced from our food system, which most of us are, we create the outcomes that we've now uh, faced, which is a lot of people suffering non-communicable diseases or lifestyle diseases, really a disaster on the planet. If we were uh, running a household, we would be like living in squalor if this was really on a personal level. What we have done to the planet is, is atrocious. And what we've done to other human beings and other forms of life are unconscionable. So there's so much that if we were aware, we would do differently. And I do really think awareness plus government policy plus incentives with industry all need to be brought to bear to help us. So I did do um, my background in counseling and consulting for a decade where I did my graduate work at University of Toronto. And uh, after working with colleagues and clients for many years, I decided that plant um, strategies were um, coming more and more to the fore even 30 years ago. And I really wanted to work on prevention. So I went on to do my doctorate in uh, community building and community change strategies. So really prevention is what I devote myself to. And as I said, Clint, it is really food that gives us our best lever. And it's the most delicious strategy. It's, we don't have to give up anything to achieve the outcomes we desire. In fact, we gain so much together and all the good, really, and very little of the harm. The point you make about awareness is really interesting. I know I've you know touched on that with other guests in the past, but the way that you framed it here, I just it made me realize that that's more or less how I came to this too, was the concept of once you're aware of something, it's there and you can't just ignore it. Or I guess you can, uh, but you choose not to. So I want to talk about some of your titles. You have a fellowship in sustainable development. You're a certified counselor. You're a psychotherapist. You've worked with all of these groups to help resettle refugees as well. How do all of these things come into play in your work as an educator? Yeah, thanks for asking that. It's not often I get to speak of these things. I come at the world with this kind of orientation of um, having grown up with a large family, um, being in, in, with modest means. I think we were kind of lower to lower income initially, and certainly my father has done very well with his career. So I would say we certainly are very comfortable middle class, but that wasn't always our initial experience. So I have a deep empathy for people. I have a deep sense of who we are as humanity. And I've been informed by really all the great religions of the world, but more so even um, humanistic psychology. I consider myself more Carl uh, Roger, a Rogerian a psychotherapist that uses human development and self-directedness as a foundation to help people tap into what they already know is the highest and best good for themselves if they really sat with it and had time to explore it, like we are doing here today. And I I think there are um, sensitivities that can easily be pushed aside when we're so busy with our lives. So um, considering uh, the plight of refugees, the world will face 
the greatest number of people who have to migrate from their homes like we've never seen so far. And already the plight of refugees is underappreciated in the world. And here we are comfortably in Canada, quite physically removed from many of the source countries of refugees. We have a big role to play as Canadians to help um, settle people, but also to care and to invest and support refugees. So to me, it's all part of the bigger question about who are we together on this planet? How well are we playing together on the planet? And how well do we take time to care for all life forms that give us life? I don't think um, any of us would be at peace if we were um, indifferent to the hardship that people are facing. There's a film, The Beaches, and in one of the scenes, they're talking about um, people playing volleyball on one side of the island while someone else was bit by a shark on the other side. And they don't want to bring in a doctor because they don't want people to come disrupt this kind of idyllic utopian life they've co-created. Um, and it's it's un, unimaginable that this person would be suffering with a bite and everybody else literally playing a game and ignoring the, the concern. I mean, it's obviously a, a, a movie, but it's not far removed from kind of the state of ignorance that a lot of us can stay in when we don't educate ourselves, when we don't have the opportunity. I'm not saying that people are purposely um, disinterested, but we only have so much bandwidth, all of us. I don't know a lot about other issues that other people know about, and I'm grateful. I only know so little of what there is to know, but what I do know, like you said, I cannot not know, and I can't ignore the opportunities that are before us and that I am so privileged to have and my obligations to bring that forward. So I, I can really meld those kind of identities that I have of different functions and roles that I have filled that really in, inform my practice now as both a researcher, an educator, and a change agent. Would you say that now you're maybe hyper aware when you see story, because we see every week now, I think, um, stories of migrants or refugees being forced out of their homes. Uh, are you now hyper aware, given your background in sustainability and um, how diets affect climate change and things like that, being that the core idea of, of uh, in some cases, why these people are leaving their homes or forced to leave their homes is because of the long chain of the chain reaction of, of climate change because of you know what we eat or, or do on a daily basis? Absolutely. Yeah, that's well framed. The kind of Arab Spring came out of an issue with the price of food. And why was there such a big price of fluctuation? It was yields. Yields are going to decline. And they're going to decline in great size with so many more suffering from lack of food availability in their region because of the climate crisis. What we are noticing already are increased um, variance and um, extremes. We're going to see more flooding. We're going to see more uh, heat waves and uh, forest fires and uh, people dying of heat, um, stroke and such conditions. We'll also see um, conditions where what used to be a place where it had a source of water and it used to have rainfall with some regularity that it could actually um, have some kind of irrigation system will no longer be possible because of the way we are um, really jeopardizing the hydrological cycle on the planet. We are in the Anthropocene. That is the time when humans have forced change at a scale that the planet has never known. 
all items are kind of in harmony to the extent that there's disruption in natural systems as well. But certainly the polar caps are part of um, managing and the way that the temperatures have um, had some kind of rhythm and flow on the planet. We have seasons and we're going to see far more disruption to those seasons. And as I've said, the, the floods and the droughts are both going to be happening in greater volume, which is affecting yields, which will affect price of food, which will affect social stability, which will affect peace, which will require people to relocate themselves. Otherwise, they all, their, their lives are at stake. Their children's lives are at stake. Who wouldn't do everything they could to save their child? Everyone would. And so we will see far more people having to migrate to places where food could be found, even a, a lifestyle that could be um, possible for their children and their children's children because conditions are going to worsen unless we wisely, and I'm in that camp of optimists, that we can turn this around if we do so quickly enough and um, with uh, the, the real sense of urgency that our international reports are calling for all over the place. Uh, bring back a point you made earlier when you said that, you know, living in Canada or living in the U.S. or someplace like that, we don't think about a lot of these things on a daily basis. A lot of people, you know, have privileges that others don't. And just today, to bring this full circle, just today, Statistics Canada released a report showing inflation going up. And the, one of the biggest things besides gas was was food prices. So mm-hmm. a lot of people, I think, you know, you mentioned it earlier, a lot of people think that's not going to bother me or that's just in one part of the world or that's just one um, segment of the population or in another country. But it's these things are they're everywhere and they're slowly creeping into more developed countries too. Um, to go back to the food prices. I want to park on that for a minute and I want to talk about, so it's, again, it's out of sight, out of mind type thing. So I want to talk to you more about your work on food systems and the environment and helping people connect the link between the two. So it, this is a big and complicated topic, but um, it's again, something people don't often think about and it's good to highlight these things. So for example, a recent uh, New York times article, they pointed out that the Colorado River would soon dry up and that meat consumption in particular was one of the biggest contributors to, to that problem. So at first glance, people would think, how, how is that connected? How do you go from, from raising cows to, to a drought in the Colorado River? So can you help highlight the, the link between those things and explain how what we eat impacts the environment around us? Mm-hmm. Everything we do as humans exacts a footprint. There isn't anything that we do that isn't going to cost something on the planet. So all of us have to be humble and appreciate our privilege of being able to live on this life-giving space. However, there are differences in our impact and evidence is mounting and it's quite compelling that it is essential. We recognize the adversity of animal agriculture for so many reasons. Um, What we're doing largely is growing in monoculture, industrial farm systems, corn, soy, wheat, other crops that are largely subsidized in North America to feed largely um, animal agriculture in confined spaces. So water is used in great volume to irrigate and ensure this monoculture is developed and supporting acres and acres of production with more than 80% of it channeled to animal feed 
So it's not food for humans, but it's feed for animals. That 80% of feed is then provided in a mix of just the right combination to get the kind of protein and the fast growing um, animals that are sought in the industry. And it translates rather inefficiently. We probably see more like 15 to 20% return on that investment. Only like a small portion of that is then going to translate into the actual animal. And then that's going to translate into a smaller amount in the, in the food for humans in terms of the meat products. So we have layers of inefficiency in this system. So water is used at every stage of that journey. It's used in production of the grain. Then it's used in preparation of the feed. Then it's used in feeding the animals. And then it's used also in processing, particularly, um, you know, the concerns around safety in um, animal slaughter and um, systems to ensure, as we noted through COVID, how much um, challenges there were in keeping food safe during the tight, fast-moving uh, slaughterhouse systems that we have for animal agriculture. So water is embedded at every stage, and it is hugely disproportionate, the amount of water that's demanded in animal agriculture compared to the requirements for equivalent, equivalent amounts of protein coming from uh, plant sources. You just mentioned monocropping, which is largely what we do, whether it's to feed animals or to feed people. And just a quick question, you, you might not know off the top of your head, but I'm curious, because these operations are so, are so large, do you think that, we might get into this later on in the conversation too, but do you think that something like polycropping or or using you know one acre of land to grow multiple um, crops together, maybe something like what indigenous peoples used to do, I, I suppose. Do you think that that is scalable or I guess an option that we might be able to look into? Or do you think it's there's just too many people at this point on, on planet Earth? Mm -hmm. I think we need to bring to bear uh, multiple strategies and I think we need a time of transition. So Helen Harwit at Harvard and colleagues have put forward um, a plan to call what we are at now as peak meat. We need to call it out, we need to name it, and we need to move away from it. But in the meantime, we need to find all of these strategies that are going to help save carbon emissions, maybe reduce methane. We need to also be innovative about the types that we can do on a smaller scale. So we are in a time of transition. For this next decade, we kind of have to bring everybody's ideas to the table and kind of have a combination. So Regenerative agriculture is talked about, um, integrative systems, enabling uh, smaller scale production. I do think we need them all. I do think we need to engage um, in all the strategies that Project Drawdown points to. Um, out of their 80 strategies that have been mapped, modeled, and measured, all of them measured by how much um, they reduce greenhouse gas emissions and how much economic return they give, both. Um, the number one is to reduce refrigerants on the planet. Number two is to increase on-land wind turbines. Number three is reduce food waste on the planet. Number four is increase plant-rich diets. Number five is manage tropical forests. And I love number six and seven. Six is educate girls and seven is um, provide support for family planning. And it goes on to explain many others. Out of the top 80 strategies, 25 of them have to do with food. And out of those 25, some, of course, deal with animal agriculture as well, including regenerative agriculture, 
um, tree cropping, um, planting more trees among where animals will um, graze. So there's many approaches that we need to tap into around the world and, and we need to use them all because contexts vary. Some herding cultures, um, that's what they know and that's what's available in their geography. So it's many factors that we have to be mindful of and be sensitive to. But overall, we do know of um, food systems that are scalable and that we can use organic methods as well as plant-based methods because of the efficiencies. We can produce so much more food on smaller amounts of land than we can compared to the animal agriculture um, paradigm. It sounds very multifaceted. This, this is a big problem, like you just went through all of those reasons that we need. And I think that's something to, to, to point out to people is that there's not just one answer. It's, it's, it's so many things together. And one of the things that you just mentioned, I wanted to ask you about, actually, it's, it's the problem of food waste, which I know we have problems here in Canada with. Um, so can you help illustrate how much of a problem it is around the world? Not, none of us intend to waste. Nobody intends to waste clothing when they buy it. No one intends to waste food when they buy it. But we do. And we overconsume on every level, um, but particularly food plant is such a critical issue because of its adverse effect on global warming. People may not be unaware that it's creating methane when it's disposed of without becoming a compost. When it's just tossed away, it creates methane gas, which is even more toxic or potent in adding to greenhouse gases or a global warming effect. So it's the amount that would really be shocking to people. In households, it's somewhere between 30 to 40% and possibly going up to 50% in some households. They would buy so much food thinking they're going to eat it. You know, they have other events out of the house. You know, they get invitations to go somewhere else. By the end of the week or two weeks, voila, they have lost, you know, a number of their perishables that they now either toss in the garbage or put into their green bin. Um, but many are just tossing it in the garbage, which is where we get more, most of the methane from when it's just part of the, the brown fill, the browns that are creating its own methane. Um, so that's really our biggest issue is the gas is coming out of it, all of the embedded water, which we just talked about, and all of the other um, resources that are embedded in those foods that are now being thrown out away as if we didn't care about them. And of course, there's the economic side of it. It costs us a lot to buy it, and then we have to buy again. I have had a very busy week. Yesterday, I went into the fridge looking for what I was going to make, but I didn't get uh, food prepared until after 8.30 in the evening. And I found broccoli that I knew I had bought at the farmer's market, but I hadn't gotten to it yet. And I did have to trim off some of it in order to make my soup. Fortunately, it was still 90% salvageable, but I wasted 10% of it last night. Had I left it for another day, I might've been wasting 30% of it. Um, yeah, I mean, it's not something we intend to do, but it really is something we need to step back from. So it's a number of strategies, buy less, really buy less. It's best that we recognize and even just observe ourselves when I invite people to think about even going plant-based, I say, don't change anything in your life. Just eat the way you do. But if you're thinking about going plant-based, just watch yourself. Just notice for a week all of what you do around food. And the same with food waste. Just notice. How much are you buying? Don't change it. Just notice. And then start tempering the amount that you consume by the amount that is purchased at one go. 
you know, I get over ambitious myself at the farmer's market. There's just like all the colors and they're so gorgeous. I want to buy so many of them. And um, I'm one person in a household. Fortunately, I have the privilege of a little freezer on the top of my fridge. And that's where a good portion of my food went. Um, the sauce I made yesterday was made from tomatoes that were from the same uh, market, but were frozen two weeks ago because I couldn't get to them all. Well, a lot of us have that, right? We get, if we have a garden, we all the zucchinis come on at the same time and all of the tomatoes come on at the same time. So we have volume. Um, so finding ways to share that with others, finding ways to store, preserve, or, um, you know, do some kind of value addition ourselves, make it into salsa. Like there's different things we can be doing, particularly if we can do it with others. But food waste is not a small issue at all. It's a very significant issue. If it's not food waste, which is what happens at post-purchase, prior to purchasing, it's called food loss. When foods are lost along the value chain from when they're harvested and um, they're lost on the field, they drop off of the tractor as it's going to town. When there's not sufficient refrigeration, they're spoiling in transit. So loss happens all along the supply chain. But as uh, North Americans, we really have the opportunity to play a bigger role in this kind of change for your climate. And a simple thing is reduce our food waste. It's so easy. It saves us money and we can feel good about it. Well, while we're on the topic of, of food in particular, um, one big thing I've noticed is that when there are new reports that come out from the United Nations or wherever that discuss climate change or global warming, it's usually, you know, oil and coal cars and things like that, like that, that are highlighted and they usually target a couple of big companies, Exxon, et cetera, that, that they've pinpointed are, are creating a lot of this, this issue, but oftentimes food is not highlighted and what we eat is not highlighted and definitely animal agriculture is not always highlighted. It, there might be a sentence or maybe a small paragraph on it, but it's never like the big highlight. However, recently, not in the last year, but uh, 2019, I think it was the Eat Lancet study that came out. And this was a group of environmental sustainability, nutrition experts from around the world that joined to, to release this report that showed, that highlighted how our food choices directly impact the, the health of the planet. When you got a chance to look at that, I was curious, what, in your eyes, what were the biggest highlights there? And I guess, do you consider, do you consider the Eat Lancet a, a game changer in terms of how you know, bodies like that approach climate change and how they relay that information to the public, being that that was never really highlighted before? Yeah, I, definitely. I mean, I love the work that uh, Dr. Willett and colleagues um, at Rockstrom, there's so many of them who are doing really leading edge, great work. You know, Rockstrom has done work on the planetary boundaries and colleagues looking at how far can we go with helping people shift from their current practices. So it's not so revolutionary for those who are familiar with the dietary options that are, have been considered for the last you know, a great number of decades. So the Eat Lancet report emphasizes a kind of a Mediterranean diet, encouraging even regional diets that put more emphasis on um, put more emphasis on plant foods. They do encourage fish in their um, some of their offerings. They do look at ways to reduce waste and reduce animal agriculture. They do also say that people could have some, but it's much smaller amounts. So 
in their report, they're advising that we reduce, North Americans particularly, we reduce our animal consumption by at least 200%, and we increase our fruit and vegetable consumption by probably more than 400%, depending on the person's um, own practices. It's astounding how many people don't like their vegetables. They were not listening to mom. She was right. We need them. And people fail to care for their own well-being when they don't realize the beautiful mechanism that we live in and how critical it is to have um, all of the symptoms go. All of the functions rely on the nutrients that uh, come out of a largely fruit and vegetable-based diet supplemented by grains and protein. But really, the main drivers are fruit and vegetables. And we have it fast backwards. You know, we really do have a, a reorientation to protein as if it's king or queen on our plate and gives such, I mean, it's almost like a garnish. You know, sometimes you'll go to a, a place and they'll make the vegetable a little garnish and people won't even eat it. It'll be coleslaw in this tiniest little cup on the side. And it's the most important item. And yet um, it often gets left behind. So um, Eat Lancet is a great report, but just even this week, World Health Organization came out with yet another report, Clint, that said health is urgent and it needs to be brought up at COP26. It needs to be one of the driving forces to get us to reclaim yet again plant-based as a strategy. They also speak in that report to the importance of modifications to animal agriculture, in addition to many other strategies. But um, Report after report, Eat Lancet is one of many since 2019, 2020, 2021. I can point the audience to the great number of reports that all are sharing this rather collective and accumulating compelling evidence that plant-based is the best strategy, not only for the planetary crisis we're in, but also for our healthcare crisis. And it's the best method to deal with issues of equity and justice. I hope that these leaders realize that and they really jump on board with that because we need kind of the leadership from the top down, I think, instead of leaving the onus on everybody else to recycle or to not waste food or to make sure that they're, they're eating more plant-based. If we can, I, I feel that if we can go from the top down, it, it would be more immediate instead of doing things like I'm sure you saw, I think it was last week, there was a researcher who came out that said that he was teaching cows how to use um, toilets in an effort to reduce the, the, the burping and, and methane and, and things like that, that they produce instead of like, I, to me, it was kind of like a silly story because they just missed the point of the cow itself being <laughs> that we're raising an animal for food when we don't really need that food anyway. But yes, it just seems like uh, missing the point, missing the mark there. So I, I, I do hope to your point that that there's leadership from the top, like what we'll see coming from COP26 in the future. Um, well, and my, I work in a faculty of agriculture. I work with traditional colleagues working in this area and they are genuine in making their earn, earnest effort to try and make um, remediation efforts to keep, basically keep animal agriculture, but to make it less harmful. And they are, you know, in fact, a good amount of the investments goes to their work. Um, this would not be really the platform to speak of the challenges I have had in securing the kind of funding my colleagues who get to work on animal agriculture can secure compared to what I am challenged to try and locate around plant-based diets. You can imagine my 
agenda is not the norm and it's not widely accepted. Um, so our colleagues who really are working on reducing um, the type of methane that comes from um, animal agriculture, the uh, respiration and um, the burping of uh, ruminants, these are um, modifications that are going to be beneficial. It can help reduce, but is it the real significant issue? Certainly not, but they can't see it yet. They can't yet hear it because they don't yet have government support either to help them transition into a new way of life. We are talking about people's livelihoods, people's children's future. I mean, I, I care for my colleagues and their kids' kids are intending to be in these businesses. What's the future for them? So I, I think, um, again, point to Helen Harwood's work um, about tr a just transition, a past peak meet. We need policies, as you rightly just said, we need government on board. We need everybody on deck to really get going on strategies to get the just transition happening, to ensure that there's resources to help move us out of animal agriculture, reduce the amount of animals we're producing, and put more money into innovations around plant-based. Both the foods that are um, to those who want that, who kind of mimic meat, they can still enjoy that experience without it having the same footprint. Whether you need those mimicked foods, that's up to the consumer to determine. But certainly we need that as um, options in the, in the marketplace. And I think there is great opportunity that Canada is quite far behind. Protein Industry Canada in the West has done so much more work in this field of ensuring that we have more uh, plant protein foods available. Um, although they are um, also one of the groups that still invest in those plant proteins for animal feed. So a good amount of the resources are channeled, as we spoke of earlier, to a very inefficient system. And there's less uh, receptivity still, even in the leaders across the country, um, to some of the innovations that I'm bringing forward with my research lab on um, examining the impact of animal agriculture, the true examination of that, and uh, also the benefits of the alternatives. So there is an appetite for some of this um, transition, but we're not quite yet ready on a scale for Canadians and Americans perhaps to hear this message of how critical we are in a state that if our food choices were revised, we could all live far more comfortably and our children's children could have a bit more assured diversity on the planet, a bit more ease of um, being able to enjoy summers outdoors. Um, whereas the path we're on now, that's not guaranteed. That's a good point. Yeah, and, and you mentioned earlier too, I want to, I want to go back to it. You, you were talking about access to food. It's, it's, it's easy to say that, you know, people should focus on their vegetables and their fruits and their legumes and things like that. But there's, it's the, again, that's multifaceted. So I suppose I'm thinking of where I come from. I'm actually American. I'm from the Midwest. And you mentioned earlier, like uh, garnish, um, there'd be a plate full of, you know, steak or whatever it is. And then a small garnish. And literally that was me that I would go to a restaurant with my family when I was younger and, you know, we, we get, um, a steak or a burger or whatever it was. And then there'd be a tiny little parsley garnish on the side. And then it was always wiped off to the side or put on a side plate and never eaten. My parents told me it was a garnish not to eat it. Didn't eat it. And now, you know, I have a bowl. That's a fourth of it is, is parsley. Um, but it, you know, but I had access to that food. A lot of people have access to that food. It's one thing to change your palate if you're used to eating a ton of meat products or hyper palatable processed foods. But it's another thing if you're in a food desert 
or you can't afford it. And, and again, you mentioned in, in your last answer, you know, making these foods, governments jumping in, making, helping to make these foods affordable for people that need it. But I want to expand this conversation out a little bit and talk about that idea of, of food insecurity and, and food justice and, and even environmental racism when it comes to our, our food systems. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in the talk that I was able to do with our friends with uh, Plant-Based Canada, we looked at the question of environmental racism because it's there and it's often overlooked. Where do you see a large a number of the mammoth um, concentrated animal feed operations? They're often in places where people have uh, lesser social influence. Obviously, they're in rural areas. But even so, they're um, in communities where there would not be as strong of a political voice or as much of uh, a community of power. And often it's people who are marginalized, racialized, and um, fighting already many other challenges that um, those communities uh, have to contend with. That would be so unpalatable for any of us to live near a lagoon where the size of the plot is collecting manure of, it was one point three seven billion liters gallons 1.73 gallon gallons of um, animal manure is produced in the U.S. say on, on an annual basis that, that number was a couple years ago in the U.S. it's a manure at a level that's 100 times what can, um, humans would produce when we have to contend with just manure alone the smell the toxicity of it, the seeping of it into the uh, the land, the management of it, uh, the air pollutants, the particular matter. There's many levels of um, ill health that are kind of secondary or tertiary from uh, the primary um, management of these feedlots. And and also, we were talking earlier about refugees too. I think you know if if you're talking about a community of 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 people living near a factory farm, like you just mentioned, where there's pollutants in the air, where there's runoff into the rivers, like that eventually will cause these people or could cause them to up and leave because their environment has been more or less poisoned. And again, we don't think about it, you know, from a developed country point of view, but there it is. That's, that's what we're talking about just with all these other places. So I think that's also, you know, an important thing to highlight there. Um, Well, yeah. I mean, with, with animal agriculture, we have, the climate-related disasters that are forthcoming. We have that in the extremes in temperatures. Then we have livestock disease. It's the, the, the animals themselves are subject to so many diseases, which are now um, heavily managed through the greatest amount of antibiotic use. More antibiotics go into animal agriculture than in human use. So it's we're also fighting um, the resistance to antibiotics because of that for human well-being. Then um, within the production, we see also the land degradation and deforestation. Not only are we cutting down the forest so that we can have more grazing spaces or building more CAFOs, we also are seeing the degradation of the soils themselves and over-tilling to produce the monoculture, which often includes tilling every year. We see water shortages that we mentioned. We see water pollution. The eutrophication of water, that's when we have growth of algae to the point where it's stifling or taking off the oxygen of other life in the ecosystem, basically creating dead zones, which we've seen in the 
Mississippi Delta and elsewhere. Um, we're decimating biodiversity, the loss of biodiversity in our lifetime. It's unbelievable that we've lost 40% of biodiversity in large animals to the smallest. In our lifetime, it's just unbelievable the kinds of consequences that people didn't anticipate, people didn't set out to ruin ecosystems, but that is the consequence of our food systems. And not to mention infectious diseases that create pandemics as well. You just mentioned a second ago, our, our grazing ruminants. So to, to kind of shift gears here and talk about solutions to all of these things, one of the solutions that some groups have put forth is this idea of regenerative agriculture. Um, there's regenerative agriculture, there's regenerative animal agriculture as a means to help fight the climate crisis. Now, from somebody like me, who's not well-versed like you in, this, in, in the topic of agriculture, um, to me, it seems counterintuitive, but there are some groups that suggest that this is actually a means forward. Can you help us understand what is regenerative animal agriculture and if it, how much it differs from just regenerative agriculture, if we're talking, if that's something separate and whether you think it's a viable pa uh, path forward? It is one of the strategies recommended in Project Drawdown. There is no one definition of what is involved or included in regenerative agriculture. Um, so um, some studies have been done about that. And, you know, 40% of those who are researching or, or articulating a definition around regenerative agriculture are looking at soil. You know, 20% might be considering in those studies um, what's biodiversity. You know, there might be, you know, another 17% who emphasize carbon sequestration or methane management. There is a number of components. So there's not uniformity across the world in terms of what different farming practices might consider or integrate into regenerative agriculture. But basically what we're trying to do is we're trying to use, continue agriculture as it is, again, trying to maintain that structure and tweak with um, these techniques to try and enable us to not have to reduce animals so much, I think is the large agenda behind it with the desire to reduce the negative side effects. So let's continue with animal agriculture by improving soil health, which is certainly a necessary and good thing to do. Um, let's be mindful of riparian zones, that is the wildlife and the, the tree and buffer areas between fields so that there's more land for wildlife to live. We know that that's insufficient because it needs to be a great swath of land in order for biodiversity to be retained. These smaller repairing the zones are insufficient, but in any case, it's better than nothing, but it's certainly not going to get at the biodiversity we require. Um, carbon sequestering certainly is happening by uh, the soils, and many who do animal agriculture speak about that as one of the best gains. They, they claim that um, they're doing a deed for reducing carbon. And I think farmers should be given support. There should be um, incentives for um, kind of crediting for the social, economic, environmental goods that come out of goods and services, really, that come out of farming. So farmers who maintain a woodlot, for example, instead of turning that over into pasture or turning that into field, they should be credited for retaining those trees and get carbon credits or carbon banking. So I think carbon sequestering is an important area that probably is given insufficient attention. In fact, more attention needs to come in these areas from uh, regenerative ag. 
Um, so livestock integration is part of regenerative agriculture, and it looks at um, ways that that can be managed. Intercropping includes another way of saying um, regenerative agriculture. Again, there's different names and different types, um, but it includes cropping with animals um, coming in the fields afterwards or among trees as well, as we mentioned, as well as increasing um, well-being for the whole ecosystem. So being mindful of the runoff, being mindful of the water zones, uh, more efficient use of water is certainly part of this um, design of regenerative agriculture. I think it's important that we support farmers and I think it's important that we find ways to transition away from the emphasis on animal agriculture as we have done. In Canada, we, we are kind of like a mother and father, one says one thing and the other parent says another. We have um, the health guide um, in 2019, Canada came out with one of the world's best food guides based on evidence and half the plate should be fruit, fruit and vegetables in every meal half should be, or, and the other half is divided into um, high quality carbohydrates or all kinds of cereals and grains, and then um, high quality protein. So we have a quarter of the plate for protein, a quarter for carbohydrates and half fruit and vegetables. And from that, we could do well in Canada if we actually adopted that and it was well promoted. At the other side of the house says, Canada is an export nation and the biggest exports are our animal products, livestock, as well as um, finished products, as well as lobster and other um, high commodity goods. So we are still supporting the economic development of our farmers, largely emphasizing animal agriculture because the revenue is far greater by a magnitude of numbers, far greater earnings coming from animal agriculture than the earnings from uh, plant-based at the time, but that's also because we're not doing enough value addition and we also we subsidize animal agriculture. So there's, it's messy, it's complicated. I would recommend and point people to a great book by uh, Darren Coleman called um, Civilization Critical. And he speaks about how much money is really the burden of farmers. Bar farmers are carrying great heavy debt by millions. And it was really intriguing uh, in Darren's work that he found almost the amount that we are collectively in debt as farming families is almost equivalent to what Canada is investing. So basically, it is not really making that much money. We're subsidizing it. So if we really looked at all of the true cost accounting, um, regenerative agriculture would need to be also um, costed from the fuller accounting of health environment and economics and more true economics like Darren has done. Yeah. Like you said, that sounds, there's a lot of uh, tentacles there. So it's, it's messy. Like uh, the, the uh, example you gave of Canada, having the mom and the dad and giving different answers is, is very astute. Um, well, think, uh, t uh, speaking of, uh, of, of answers to this problem. So one thing that you've done is you've designed what a sustainable, healthy plant-based diet can look like uh, with your book. I was hoping you could walk us through some of the tenets that you found that, that can help somebody get started on a diet that will help reduce their carbon footprint and their impact on the environment around them. Sure. Happy to do that. Love to do that. Uh, one thing I love to remind people is we're not giving up anything when we go to plant-based. In fact, we're gaining so much. So there's not a diet in the sense of a loss or having to forego. 
Um, or as I like to say to my father, I'm just trying to forego, you know, a heart disease and colon ca cancer, ideally, you know, or whatever ailments we might have. It, it isn't, that's a bit flippant, but it is true that those who are practicing a healthier diet have the opportunity to enjoy greater well-being and uh, longevity and years without disease. So what I'm um, advising people to adopt is just look at their lifestyle. If they want to look, consider going plant-based, examine their current practices, have discussions with the family because success will really require the household to be on board. Um, and it's far more enjoyable than when you have to kind of have debates over um, meals in the house and get everybody involved, get people involved in cuisines of the world. You know, I love Mediterranean. I love Indian. I, there isn't any cuisine that I can't turn into the most scrumptious, delightful and decadent food. It should be decadent. It should be sensual. It should be succulent. We should not um, make plant-based in any way um, appear less than or in any way not as satisfying as um, animal foods that people have been accustomed to. You mentioned earlier that it's a challenge sometimes to get the palate on board. And I think that takes time. I did not like uh, vegetables growing up myself. And now I realize because it was mostly boiled. I despise boiled vegetables, but roasted and raw, they just gives it all together a new life. You know, roasted vegetables are like, you know, being sassy and fun at a party. Somehow it seems they just come to life and have um, all sorts of hues and elements to them. And the flavor just um, comes forward. I would encourage people to learn online. I would encourage people to be part of communities. Uh, we, before COVID, used to host a monthly gathering of plant-based eaters together. We would share meals and we would then take home leftovers there's lots of ways to learn about the uh, ways to improve um, our own dietary patterns, but start with the easy stuff. Start with what we're already doing at home. Most of our meals already are more than half plant. If we look at what we're already eating, it's already more than half. We're really probably only tinkering with, you know, 20, 30% of our food choices because, you know, if we're able to really consider um, it, the animal products probably constitute a far smaller amount, they can be substituted now with things that are very similar. So if people want to keep things as usual, there's lots of options to simply substitute. But I really recommend trying to eat whole food plant-based based on culinary delights of the world and involving the family to join in and, and try new recipes, go online and test things out. During COVID, I did not go a week without brownies. I made bean brownies every which way and everyone was delightful. I made them with tofu. I made them with chickpeas. I made them with um, white beans and peas. That was my favorite, white beans and peas together. The white beans are so rather mild and unassuming. So then I soak dates, put them in uh, cocoa. Um, I like nut butter. So I add nut butter to them. Some, if you want it more sweet, you add more um, honey or maple syrup and voila, you bake it. I just bake it briefly in a toaster oven. I, I like to add nuts to it as well. And it, I love it. I lived on that stuff. So I never lack for food and I never lack for satisfaction. Plant-based is a way to enjoy the best flavors uh, with the least amount of harm to the planet. 
I like I like how you framed it when you said um, uh, to look at other cultures and try to bring those into you know use utilize those those recipes and those new things as I guess a learning experience with your family to make it part of a so it becomes culture. One huge thing for people I know it's it's a psychological thing oftentimes is. Uh, I can't give up this dish or I can't do that because, you know, my grandma would make it or whatever. It's part of culture. Um, and people feel that they're losing culture if they're, if they're removing some type of uh, product altogether, but that's a good point. Like you just create that new, those new memories, that new culture. So that's a really good point. And I, and I also did want to mention, I think I forgot to uh, mention the name of your book. So we'll, we'll link your book, uh, at the bottom of the show notes in this podcast, it's called plant-based diets for succulents and sustainability. So we'll link that. So everybody can, can find that now, before I let you go, I just, we went through a lot of topics and I know that somebody listening at home could probably think, you know, I'm just one person. What can I do? And maybe become overwhelmed. You just mentioned how, how easy it is, or it can be to, to change your diet, but I just wanted to go over any other tips that you might have for people listening at home, what they can do as consumers, um, when they, to, to make better choices and vote with their dollar when it comes to creating a better environment. Yeah. Yeah. I, number one thing is love each other. Number two is to be kind to ourselves by just being aware of our own state of awareness, you know, that we're just coming to this awareness. So, but then go at it earnestly, learn, learn more and take whatever actions we can. I love project drawdown because it's, proven practices. If we did all of them, we could turn the ship around. But if we just in the top two, those plant-based and reduced food waste, if all of us adopted those, we could really reverse the kind of crisis our world is facing. And I'm in the camp of reversal. Of course, I'm grateful for colleagues who are working on mitigation and adaptation strategies, but I am glad there's a number of us. And I'm so grateful for this community of Plant-Based Canada and elsewhere striving for a mobilization effort. So I invite families, be part of something bigger, be part of something that's healthy, be part of something that's kinder, join with others together and have dinners around plant-based and invite everybody to bring their best plant-based meal. And don't even call it plant-based, just you know, invite them to come with a creative di- dish that doesn't involve an animal. Um, there's all different ways to say this. Like sustainable diets is another term that we're um, using. I've been asked by Rutledge to head up the world's definitive guide on sustainable diets. And we're calling that, um, you know, give us the nutrients we need that preserves the environment at the same time. That's culturally appropriate. It's economically accessible, that it celebrates the sacredness of food um, and that we recognize the value of the workers involved in the system as well. So COVID has really taught us the vulnerabilities of our food system, how essential food workers are. So I say treat everybody with kindness, Um, get to know your farmer's market. If you don't have one in your community, start one. Um, There are people ready to sell to you. They would enjoy that relationship. The more local we can get, the more regional we can support, that also will be a helpful part of the strategy. Dr. Kafani, despite some of the topics that we covered being quite serious, I really enjoyed talking with you today. It was a very pleasurable conversation, and I hope that everybody listening takes something home from this and uh, follows up, checks out your book, looks at some of the other work that you've done. It's been great talking to you today. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks so much, Quinn. This podcast featured royalty-free music from bensound.com. A very special thanks to our guests for speaking with us and sharing their insights. And of course, thank you for listening. 
The Plant-Based Canada podcast is an initiative of the group Plant-Based Canada, which aims to educate the public and health professionals on the evidence-based benefits of plant-based whole food nutrition for individual and planetary health. To learn more about the show, visit our website, www.plantbasedcanada.org, and stay up to date by following us on Instagram and Facebook at plantbasedcanada.org and our Plant-Based Canada YouTube channel. Also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you download your podcasts.